We all have different ways of coping with, if not managing, pressure. You've had a very blessed life if, as a parent of a teen, you've not experienced some sort of stress. And it's perhaps that variety of situation that we've experienced that makes us more or less adept to managing that pressure. But our young people have had very limited opportunities to experience or deal with the kinds of stresses that they now find themselves under. So just how can we practically help them to learn how to cope for themselves when we've typically tried to solve their problems for them? Hello and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, founder of The Study Buddy and your host. In this, our second season of the podcast, we're following six students as they head towards their GCSEs in 2021. Each week, I catch up with these very different teams to see how things are going in a one-to-one coaching section. Then, with a panel of experts in our weekly podcast, we discuss some of the issues that come up. These could be broad themes such as motivation or managing mental health, or they can be quite focused, such as how to best revise for a specific subject. These are normal teens, so you can be sure that we'll be covering the kinds of topics that young people up and down the country will be facing. So if you're a parent, a carer or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. Last week, we looked at the learning gap that our young people were experiencing. In this episode, and given that tomorrow is World Mental Health Day, we'll be looking at the impact this uncertainty can have on our young people. We'll be exploring stress-busting techniques to help our teens stay centred during these uncertain times. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Amari Eccleston-Brown. Amari is perhaps better known as the homework guru. He's the author of The Secret to Happy Homework and the director of the tutoring company Believe in Learning. Amari is also a children's mindfulness coach and a passionate campaigner for mental health. Amari, thank you for joining me. It's hardly surprising over the last week, and indeed the last months, our teens have been feeling increasing levels of stress and pressure. Some have mocks coming up, all are conscious that they've got catching up to do, and many are feeling the pressure to perform well in next year's exams and are aware of what it means to their futures. Robin explained how she was in tears recently, having received a six for an English language mock paper when she'd been hoping for an eight. For her, this is partly due to how school has drilled into them they should be getting the highest marks if they want to go to university. I cried for an hour and <laughs> it was not very good. And then on the, on the Tuesday, a couple of days later, we got the mark exam back in the post. And we went through, right, pick up marks there, pick up marks there, makes sense. And I thought, what a six? I never get sixes, I always get sevens or eights. I was really, really unhappy. And then my mum emailed and asked for the marking scheme because something just didn't really make sense. It turns out she mismarked it and actually got a seven and was three marks off an eight. And I was like, so upset all weekend. <laughs> it's wrong. At school, it's sort of drilled into us that um, universities, they all want the upper end of A's. A, they all want A stars and A star stars. They all want eights and nines. So if you're passing, that's not good enough. Not good enough to just pass. You need to get top grades. The way my school sort of put it is I imagined I'd be sat in an interview or something university and I'd be going, and they'd say, well, you, um, you only got this grade and you're a history GCSE. How, how do you think that looks to us? Amari, 
There's pressure building from all directions for our teens, especially those in exam years. Why is it, in some cases, this can be a useful catalyst or a motivator, but in others, it can be so destructive? Yeah, I think that's a really great question, Nathan. I think that it can be, well, the first thing to say is that it really depends on your child. It really depends on the student, right? It depends on what other aspects might, what other things might be going on in their life. But I think that's a really key thing for every parent to know that, you know, and I think every parent who's had more than one child knows that they're different, you know, and one child might be really resilient in one way and the other child really struggles. So I think in terms of answering that, it's not that the same set of circumstances is necessarily going to prove to be, as you say, a motivator or catalyst or going to be destructive. However, I think there's some things that can shift the balance one way or the other. And I think in terms of it being a catalyst, I think what's really got to be there is a sense that the student has that there's a sense of ownership. So in terms of what I, when I work with parents and, I, and when I work with students, I say that allowing the child to have a sense for themselves of why they're doing what they're doing and why it's important for them and their only future that they see for themselves is so critical because I think what our students get a lot of and I think, you know, Robin is kind of speaking to that, speaking to it there is this sense of it's something that comes from outside of themselves. So they just experience it as pressure. And it's, if you don't do this, you can't get into a good university, you won't get a good job, you won't be happy, everything's going to go terribly. And wait, I'm only 15. <laughs> so, of course, that's going to be very destructive. However, if the story is something very different, where it's, right, I really want to, let's say, go and study automotive engineering, and I've landed on that because one of my students at the moment wants to do exactly that. Now, he knows that, of course, for that, he's interested in the sciences, but in order to get into the uh, college that he wanted to, to study a BTEC, he needed to actually get a certain level in English, which he isn't that interested in. But he knew that it was, okay, this is a step that I have to go to in order to do what I want to do. Now, was English difficult for him? Definitely. But was he motivated? For sure, because he saw something at the end of it that was for him, that was his own decision. It wasn't about his parents or his teachers, or in some sense, the society saying, if you don't do this, you're at a failure. And that's the bit we really want to try and save our children from, this internalization of the message that if they don't do well, that they are actually therefore equal a failure. How do you distinguish between the two, though? Because sometimes someone can hold on to a dream that's um, or an ambition that just seems so far away that actually they might not they might not reach that. And so then they, they start piling on more and more. So in the case of um, the, um, the student that you've got who was looking to do uh, automotive engineering, a stretch goal of getting a better grade in English than maybe he was used to um, is one thing. But if we look at some cases of children who will want to go on to do know, rocket science um, or uh, uh, doctors and these kinds of things where they're, where they're being told that they need eights and nines, how, how can we, I suppose, convert that into something positive? Yeah, I think that's a really tricky one because you don't, obviously, no parent wants to set their child up for a fall and you want to be responsible in kind of have, helping them to manage their expectations. But also you don't want to, as a parent, you don't want to take away the opportunity for them to, to leap in the first place, knowing that there might be a fall. And I think in, in writing my book, I spoke to lots of people. I spoke to many people far more expert and experienced than myself, right? And I spoke to psychologists. I spoke to mindfulness experts. I spoke to educators. And every single one of them, without fail, had something to say about the importance of allowing our children to fail and allowing our children to experience failure because that's actually 
part of life. And it's through actually experiencing those failures and then recovering from them that they're actually going to be the most happy and the most resilient. So in a sense, I would say to your question there, yes, don't sort of build them up and fill their heads with ideas that might be unrealistic. But at the same time, don't be too worried about trying to protect them from maybe going for that goal, going for that eight or nine, and then not achieving it. Because in learning that that's sometimes what happens and that it's still worthwhile to go for the goal, that's the real, that's real aim. In fact, just yesterday I was doing a, one of Theodore Roosevelt, um, a famous speech that he gave where he talks about the man in the arena. He talks about the, the, that those who, who know victory and know defeat and that they, if they fail, they fail daring greatly. I think that's so brilliant. And so it's about that. It's about teaching them that, okay, well, look, if you really want this, okay, go for it. And you can be honest with them. Hey, you might fail. This might not turn out. But at least you failed daring greatly. So I think that's really what the message is. I do. I love that phrase, daring greatly. And actually, I'm reminded of the the very first episode we did on the, the podcast with Dr. Dominic Thompson, where she talked about this fear of failure and how actually it can hold a lot of uh, young people back from from wanting to take part, uh, because if if I can't be the best, then there's no point trying at all. You mentioned in there about uh, talking to mindfulness coaches, and I'm really interested in in exploring actually what mindfulness is and how it might be able to help our um, young people cope with pressure. And this pressure, I guess, isn't so much the kind of pressure to perform in a specific instance, but at the moment we've got a, a background of GCSE years being interrupted. We're not really sure what's happening in the future, um, whether exams will take place or not. So this sort of this overriding feeling that everything can be can get on top of me. What are the kinds of approaches that that young people might take that can help them? Um, I don't know. Is it is it center themselves or, or find calm? Yeah, and I think actually in just the picture that you painted there, you painted so beautifully what it is to be mindful, as in to have our minds full. So, you know, I was just looking just before recording this podcast with you, just looking at where we currently are at, because it seems to be changing all the time in terms of what's going to happen next year with our GCSEs and our A-levels. And the, it, what the children are dealing with, or what teenagers are dealing with, are shifting sands. And so they're quite right to have their minds full with, well, what does this mean? What does this mean for my future? Are my grades going to be worth the paper that they're written on? You know, so many questions. And mindfulness is really an antidote to that because in the most simple terms, it's simply about choosing to be aware of this moment right now. And I really emphasize that word choosing because it's a choice to go, okay, what is going on? And in that case, it might be, what am I feeling? What thoughts are coming up? What am I noticing? And choosing to stick with that. And it's a repeated choice that you make because of course your mind takes you away the thoughts take you away and it's choosing to return to that present moment. Now, how does that help? Because obviously that's the people listening are going to go, okay, fine, but how does that actually help me? Well, it helps because it allows you to be, it allows you to deal with the things that come up. It allows you to be okay with the present moment rather than what we tend to do, which is to try and distract ourselves by whether that's Netflix or by being extra busy. And that's another one we have to be careful of by just making ourselves super busy to actually to try and drown out those thoughts. Many ways we have of distracting ourselves, or we could just try and suppress the thoughts, 
or we get locked into trying to fight the thoughts and say, no, you're not stupid. Yes, you are. No, you're not. And then we kind of all but do some sort of Jekyll and Hyde thing <laughs> talking to ourselves. So none of that is really very helpful. And certainly it doesn't really do much for our mental health or for our well-being. So mindfulness is really about this kind of this attitude of just accepting it. So John Kabat-Zinn, who's kind of seen as the grandfather of sort of Western practice of mindfulness, talks about laying out the welcome mat for these feelings. Um, so it's kind of like going, OK, you're here and I'm just going to sort of notice you. And if it sounds like I'm making it sound really simple, it is in as much as it's not necessarily simple to do, but I think one of the things that mindfulness suffers from is that some people think that it's a really complicated thing. But mindfulness in, of, in and of itself is very simple. It's simply choosing to go, hmm, I'm noticing that I'm feeling really anxious. So something I might tell students to do is go, well, let's, let's be curious about that. Where do you feel anxious? Is it in your stomach? Is it in your chest? What do you notice when you feel anxious? And did you notice what it was that first made you feel anxious? Was it when I said, was it when I mentioned the word GCSEs? Was it when I mentioned the fact that, hey, we're going to have to do some revision? What was it that was the trigger for you? And you go, ah, okay. And you begin to notice those things. Now, the bit that isn't simple about it, the bit that's difficult is it's difficult to change our habits. It's difficult to stay with these uncomfortable feelings, especially when we're in the practice, which most of us are, of running away from them in some way. But it is incredibly helpful. So is that, as you say, I mean, on one hand, that, that sounds dead straightforward. Ah, so all I need to do is recognise that I'm feeling anxious and, and, and then everything will be okay. But how do you get to that point where you can reach some, some kind of... Um, eureka moment because I guess that there are different levels aren't there there's I'm I'm can transfer I'm, I'm thinking I'm being anxious about this thing but actually the real root of the problem is is something else yeah exactly and I think as you do it you begin to realize those layers so one of the things is that emotions tend to mask emotions a bit like layers or of an onion and you actually go oh I'm feeling anxious but behind that anxiety is fear and behind that is a feeling that hey I'm not good enough Behind that is a feeling that, you know, my mum or a teacher once said to me oh, that I'd messed up or something like that. But, you know, you don't need to get to these kind of eureka moments. That's not really what it's about. You know, again, this idea that it's about having these mind-blowing epiphanies is also not really the point. So really, it's called a mindfulness practice for a very good reason, because it takes practice. And it takes, you know, and that practice doesn't need to be very complicated. I mean, studies have shown that simply two, three minutes of, you know, paying sort of attention to your breathing, kind of going in and out, has remarkable effects on, on your psychology and, and begins to change the, literally the, the wiring of your brain. So these are very simple things we can do. Now, I want to sort of, for any parents listening and maybe even students listening, kind of try and get it a bit more in their lives, right? So it's like, okay, great, this is all great, but they may have heard of mindfulness before, but what's something that I can actually do that's going to help me? Okay, so a simple practice might be something called square breathing, which is something I invite my students to do quite a bit. And literally square breathing couldn't be simpler. It's, you imagine a square, and as you go up one side of the square, you're breathing in for four counts. So you're simply going one, two, three, four in your mind as you're breathing in. And then you're breathing out for four counts, and then you're breathing in for four counts, breathing out, and you're just recycling that. Now, all that really does is by taking those deeper breaths, right, is that you're actually, you're helping to regulate your system, regulate 
often when you are anxious, you know, that fight or flight system is kicking in. It helps to downregulate that. And also what you're doing is you're bringing more oxygen to your brain. And so you're actually helping it to function better. And simply that. And so when students go into exams and they're feeling really anxious, often they do that. They'll just take a moment to do some square breathing and they can they can begin to kind of calm themselves down. And obviously that then gives them access to the logical part of their brain that they need to have to you know, do their exams or to focus on what they're doing. That's actually remarkable. Um, I'm pleased that this is a podcast, not a video, because I think I just looked really quite daft as, as my entire head was tracing four seconds up a square and, a, <laughs> and along. But it really does actually immediately have quite a profound impact, doesn't it? Actually, I feel, and I wasn't even aware that I felt particularly uptight or anxious beforehand about anything, but actually just taking a moment to do nothing but think about something completely different is, um, is was wow. I think that's... And I think just to, to add one point, I think the other thing is to distinguish mindfulness from meditation, I think is also really helpful because meditation is included within mindfulness. But I think many people have a real natural, what's the word I'm looking for? A real sort of fear almost of meditation because they imagine it being sitting there doing nothing and just being with my thoughts. And that's just scary or just plain boring. <laughs> I just can't do it. So I think mindfulness is useful because mindfulness can include so many things. You can walk mindfully. You can wash the dishes mindfully. You can do your homework mindfully. You know, the difference between doing your homework mindfully versus not might be, hey, you might be really aware of your hand moving across the page and the, the sensation of the pen in your hand or the against the paper or something like that. So you really don't need to choose like special actions to be mindful. You can do anything. And it's just really about choosing to bring a greater degree of attention and of your awareness to that thing that you're doing it in the moment that you're doing it. I think you're right. That so certainly I, I would um, hold my hand up to thinking that that mindfulness was some kind of new age thing. Um, actually, I think even saying new age shows my age, um, <laughs> that it's that there's something about that that's a bit, a bit for someone else um, yeah. to do. But in actual fact, what you've just described there, um, was so dead simple and seemingly could be really, really effective that actually you wonder why more people aren't just doing that or whether maybe people are doing that and don't, don't even realise that actually we've sort of fallen accidentally into a mindfulness. Well, I think one of the things, I think there's definitely what you said about this idea of kind of thinking, oh, this is all sort of new age. It's some sort of wishy-washy, potentially hippie stuff or whatever. Or people kind of confuse it with being, oh, it's just being either religious or even spiritual. And people kind of have a, you know, an aversion to that. But I think the other thing is that people become very hard on themselves. And I think especially in the West where we have mostly have a culture of sort of striving and, you know, kind of A-type personalities being that it's about sort of go get it and, you know, achieve and just do it and all these sorts of things. And so it's this idea of then it becomes another thing for you to be bad at. It's like, oh, now I suck at meditating. Now I suck at being mindful <laughs> because my mind is going all, all over the place. Whereas the, the advice when that happens is just to go, oh, you just notice that, hey, I noticed that I was trying to pay attention to my breath, but I thought about the, you know, I just thought about the beef burger I want to get later. <laughs> you know? And you go, oh, that's funny that I thought about that. 
I think you're right that there's definitely an element of being hard in ourselves and and certainly amongst people who I guess typically would apply more pressure on themselves to excel and to do better. One of the things that you mentioned earlier that I want to just come back to was um, as you're working through sort of the layers and, and these distractions on, on why it's um, why something might have happened, why I'm feeling stressed. And this idea that actually I'm just no, because I'm not good enough, I think was the example, one of the examples that you that you gave. How do you encourage students to get past thinking that? Because that tends to be quite a default. How, how can you then distinguish between sort of a, a fact and a, 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 a self-criticism um, or something that's just not necessarily true? I'm just not good enough. It tends not to be true, but it does also tend to be students' go-to go response. Yeah, totally. And I think the go-to response of most parents when they see their child having some sort of lack of self-esteem, because I do quite a lot of work with, with students in terms of helping them develop their self-esteem. And then I see the parents who very earnestly call me up and say, I'm just so worried, let's call him Jimmy. Jimmy is really struggling with his self-esteem and I just don't get, he doesn't see what I see. And then when I go there, what they say to Jimmy is, you see, you should be proud of yourself. You see, this is good. Why aren't you proud of yourself? And you think, but that's the exact opposite message because even though you're saying that you should be proud of yourself, effectively what you're communicating is you failed at being proud of yourself, <laughs> which is really <laughs> feeding into this idea that they have that they're not, somehow they're not good enough and whatever they do, they mess up. So even when they should be proud of themselves, somehow they're not good enough to realize that they should be proud of themselves in that moment. So I think as a parent, it's very difficult because of course you want your child to think and to know, in fact, that they're that they're doing well, that they're good. And it's very hard to not want to sort of jump in there and rescue them and say, don't you see that you're fine and stop worrying about this? I think what's much more important is that um, is to have a conversation with your child about failure and allow them to see that failure is okay. So a couple of things that I do with my students, for instance, is first of all, um, get them to, to, to describe what failure is. Like, let's, let's come up with a definition. Like one of the things we do is we go onto Google and we look up quotes, famous quotes about failure. And then they have to kind of collate their favorite ones and then come up with their own quote. Now, they might just choose one. Like, for instance, I'm sure Roosevelt's probably had a quote or Churchill a quote about failure without a doubt. Yeah. Or they can kind of take their favorite bits from different ones and make their own one. And then they turn it into a poster. But it's just about them kind of getting a sense of being okay with failing, embracing it. A really lovely uh, like acronym for failure that I really love is first attempt in learning. And I think that's a really great one for students because it goes, okay, it's simply my first attempt in learning. And then there will be more. And so it doesn't mean that I am a failure. And that's the bit that we really want to distinguish between. Between failure, which simply means, you know, not achieving a desired outcome versus I am a failure, which is the bit that we, you know, and this isn't just for students, but as adults as well, we tend to kind of get confused. And then when we walk around thinking that I am a failure, that I'm not good enough, then that's really painful. And I think to be able to have the ability to go, hey, my performance wasn't good enough, because that may well be the case. It might be the case that your performance wasn't good enough, but then you have an ability to go, but I'm the still capable. So I can look at that and go, 
what can I do differently? Which is where, and I know you talk a lot about this, is where the goal setting can come in because it's actually go, hey, look, I fell short of where I wanted to get. Say I wanted to get a nine, but I got a six. You know, well, what do I need to do? And the key bit there is about effort. But of course, when you have a feeling that you aren't good enough, of course, you're not going to want to put the effort in because what does putting more effort in? You're raising the stakes on your ability to see that, hey, you're really a failure which is a lot what happens with homework, for instance. So um, students may avoid their homework because um, what is it? It's just yet another chance for them to mess up. So if I don't put effort in in the first place, well, at least I've got the excuse of, well, I didn't really try. So if I don't do well, well, that makes sense. But if I try and then I don't do well, well, that's really going to knock my confidence. So and the, the rationale, and it makes sense, is to simply not try. You can definitely see that, and I recognise that from um, from Jake, the sense of bravado that would almost come up. And as you say, you can almost become proud of not even trying more than you could stomach the indignity of not doing as well as um, either he expected or he thought other people might have expected him to have done. Yeah, because it's about, because for Jake and for other students who do the same, that bit's in his control, isn't it? He can be in control of not trying. Therefore, there was a bad result when he gets it. You can easily rationalize that, well, I was in control of that because I knew. But hey, if I try really hard and then it's out of my control what grade I get, then that leaves me spinning. So it's about helping. And again, this is where the mindfulness comes in because rather than about controlling your emotions, it allows you, as in trying to repress them and direct them in a certain way, it allows you to be in control where you are, you know what? you kind of fundamentally have this knowledge that no matter what happens, I can handle it. It does sound like there's an element of that, which is sort of being at peace with whatever an outcome might be, which I think is is um, a fantastic place to be um, for, any, for, for anyone. Um, if you can cope with whatever life throws at you because you know either my, my goal didn't need that, um, then... I think that's that's great. You can see how that would make for a a better, healthier well-being all round. But I wonder how many of us in actual fact are really like that. So talking to Robin earlier, she was talking about getting a six in her uh, English language um, mock paper, but she really wanted to get an eight. Now, her dad took the, the approach of, but what did you need? What do you need to pass? What do you need for your next step? So do your goals, does your end goal change now? because you've got a six or not because if it if it doesn't then then let's move on let's let's go through and robin just um wasn't really in a place where she could do that because actually it was a a, a sort of a, an indication of what she was capable of and what she's capable of in her own mind um was so much more than that in actual fact robin was capable of more than that and it was a mismarked paper but the but the whole idea underneath it showed that how do you get to that place where you can be comfortable with whatever comes your way? Because I'm fairly sure sitting here that that doing square breathing exercises alone isn't going to isn't going to get me there. Mm. It's not it's not an overnight thing. That's the main thing I want to say. And you're, of course, you're completely right. Simply doing a square breathing, even if you do that religiously every day of your life, is not going to get you to the place where you know something you're really hoping for and it doesn't come off, and you're not going to feel thrown by that. I think the major thing is that you can get to a place where you don't mind being thrown sometimes. I think that's the other thing. It's rather than trying to 
you know, aim for this life where it's like, oh, I'm always, you know, kind of, you know, I'm always on the horse. I'm, I never get thrown by anything. It's just, that's just not life. <laughs> and so it's kind of being okay with, hey, there's going to be days when I feel really bad about myself. There's going to be days where I'm down, but at least I don't have to add the fact that I'm down about being down, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm not upset about the fact that sometimes I get up upset and, oh, it appears that today is one of those days. But I think the other thing, just to go back to what Robin's dad said to her. So it's funny because as you said what he said, I, well, do you need that for your next step? I was sitting here going, that's brilliant. I wish I'd come up with that myself. That sounds fantastic. And then I heard what Robin experienced. And I think that's the thing that as parents or as kind of older adults were wise and to see the bigger picture, especially with our teens, need to understand, you know, how big things can seem to them. Because we're like, yeah, but don't sweat it because, you know, in the grand scheme of things, but they don't have a grand scheme of things because that's not the way their, their brains are wired. They have the right now scheme of things. And it's like, this is really huge in my world. So actually, I think Robin's dad's uh, advice was actually really sage, but maybe she wasn't ready to hear it. And I don't want to just talk in sound bites, but here's another sound bite for you, which is um, they say that, you know, people care what you know when they know that you care. So for teenagers, what that means is we have to spend some more time listening and we have to allow them to know that we really get them. So it sounds like what Robin really needed in that moment, first of all, was for her dad or for anybody else to get, this is a really big deal for you, right? For you, not getting a, getting a six when you were expecting to get an eight or a nine really seems like a big deal. And for me to kind of, in a sense, step into your shoes. And really what we call it, we call it reflective listening. So it's about a case of Robin kind of going, yeah, I know that must be really annoying or I get, or just going, yeah, I know, I get it. That's really difficult. And then once she's actually had her emotional needs met, then you can bring her more to the logical things. Okay, right, but what can we do next about it? And then she might have been kind of receptive to hearing, actually, it doesn't matter. Now, as you've just said, in the case of Robin, her paper was mismarked. So there you go. She did actually do better. But I think in many cases, that's not the case. And children um, or teenagers do need to know that they've been heard. And I think in all sorts of things in terms of dealing with the trickiness that it is having, you know, having a teenager and trying to, and this isn't just academics, um, it's to, as an adult, be able to pause, and again, mindfulness is helpful there, to control your knee-jerk responses, as difficult as that can be, and then just go, okay, what is it that they need me to hear? And it might even be more than what is it that they're saying, but what is it that they really need me to hear? Do they need me to hear that this is a really difficult struggle for them, that they're concerned, that they're worried, that they are angry even, you know, that they think this is completely unjust. And can I hear that and put aside how I think they should be thinking and then give them space to express that? And then maybe we can move on. But it is firstly that bit of connection before we can rush to sort of redirect them to where we think or want them to be going. I'm reminded of um, of something that was said by um, Andy Cope, um, again in a previous episode, and actually others since then, that children won't do as you say, but they will do as you do. And so that practice there where you talked about of the um, of the adult taking a step back, thinking, 
and maybe that's that in itself is, is mindfulness. I'm also reminded that there are there are a number of other occasions where actually I, we as parents probably fall foul of I was expecting this and it feels like the end of the world. So I guess it's a case of should we be considering more the 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 position we've got as a role model for our children and then starting to uh, well model some of those um, ideal behaviors like 100 percent, 100 percent, and it's never too late because ideally we want to start as as early as possible with with children but it's never too late to to model because even in this period as teenagers when teenagers are again programmed to rebel programmed to to push back against their parents their or their authority figures and because to leave the nest even in this they're looking to you to be their guides to be their role models and you know numerous studies have shown that the biggest influences on a children's upbringing on their outcomes in life are is the influence of the parents in terms of the the what's the word in terms of the examples that they set so modeling is super important so you know, this is from screen time. If you're there on your phone all the time and they come and talk to you and you're always sort of like, uh-huh, uh, what, uh-huh, yeah, whilst you're scrolling, even if you think you're doing something really highbrow, like reading the Sunday Times on your app, <laughs> you know, you think this is a very worthwhile thing to be doing, not like you playing Fortnite. But so as, far as, they can, as far as they're concerned, you're just as wedded to your screen as they are. And so it's hypocritical. So you really do have to lead by example. And, and I think most importantly, how you manage your stress. But I think, again, it's not about showing that you are trying to sort of um, become, you know, some sort of Mother Teresa or saintly and never displaying that you're stressed, because that's not natural either. And that's not healthy. Much better to, to, to definitely try and control your anger. But when you are feeling stressed, to show them that you can handle that stress or deal with that stress in a healthy way, i.e. by communicating it and saying, hey, I was stressed. And a really big one for me is that I think families in general need to do more going back to things when they've gone wrong. So you've had a big bust up. Your teenage son has um, promised that he was going to clean his bedroom on the weekend. And he's not only not cleaned his bedroom, he's actually created more of a mess in the kitchen right? Like completely the opposite of what was agreed, right? And then you just lose it. You blow your top, right? And everything that you've read, all the parenting blogs, all the good things go out of the window in that moment. Now, rather than simply apologizing, which is mostly what happens, maybe, is to kind of go back and go, well, what what went wrong there, right? On both sides. What, what were my triggers and how could we do this differently? assuming that a similar situation is probably going to come up again, which the chances are, especially if you don't do something different, it will. Maybe not exactly that situation, but something where you're more or less going to be triggered in the same ways. So I think a really helpful thing we can do for our teenagers in terms of modeling is modeling how we deal with the mistakes that we make. And this goes back to the failure. Can I be man, woman enough, grown up enough to kind of go, hmm, I made a mistake there and I'm happy enough to face that mistake and look at, well, what can I learn from this? How could I do it better? And to include you in that when obviously the mistake you've made has been with your teenager. My thanks to Amari for what was a fascinating and really practical episode. 
We're all aware that mental health and the well-being of teens is of paramount importance. Scarcely an episode has gone by without one of our experts talking about it. And yet the pressure continually mounts for our young people. So if we can't prevent it all, the question must surely be, how can we help them to better cope with it? I'll confess that I was a little cynical about mindfulness. The image it conjured for me was some kind of tantric meditative poses with crystals and whale song. But, always happy to be wrong, that was not at all what Amari was describing. In fact, it couldn't have been further away from the truth. When things start to get too much, simply take a moment and step outside of the situation. We all know that you can't be objective when you're caught in the middle of something. I guess at its simplest, mindfulness is simply a way of taking this moment. Amari's square breathing technique was a strangely calming experience, and all in less than half a minute. And that might be all you need to reflect and reevaluate the causes of your stresses. And, as he said, this isn't an immediate cure-all. In that respect, it seems to me that mindfulness is a skill, and like all skills, benefits from practice. But Amari also talked about attitudes, and in particular, an attitude to failing. He made an important distinction for me between I have failed at a thing and I am a failure. Now, it can be difficult for our teens to reconcile that with something as apparently final as exams. But this mindset is critical for them to grow and learn, and also for them to manage the kinds of curveballs that life will inevitably throw at them. One of the best ways that we can help our own teens, as Amari was saying, is to adopt these techniques and outlooks first for ourselves. Do as I say, not as I do, is not a winning parenting strategy. Not only is it hypocritical, but it's doomed to failure. Our teens are more likely to mimic our behaviours than they are to follow our instructions, no matter how right we are. But not only that, good mental health starts with you. We focused a lot on the pressure that our teens feel, but many parents feel it just as acutely. So, in following some of Amari's advice, maybe the whole family will feel calmer, more grounded, and ready to tackle obstacles together. Thank you for listening. I hope that you found this episode enlightening and practically useful. If you did, it would be great if you could take a moment to leave a five-star rating. It helps us reach other parents and spread the word on ways in which they can help support their own young people. Of course, please do share the link to this and the other episodes on your social media weapon of choice. It's always very much appreciated. There'll be another episode next week, so please don't forget to subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast.